We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Sean Su. Yeah, hi, everyone. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And great to be back. And our first matter of business this evening is the KMT and the Taiwan People's Party on Wednesday of this week, agreeing to form a joint presidential ticket for January's election, and that the name at the top of said ticket will be determined through public polls. Now, the agreement came after a two-hour meeting between KMT presidential nominee Ho Yoi, TPP chairman and presidential nominee Kerwin Zhe, and KMT chairman Eric Zhu. Now, former president Ma ying was also in attendance at the meeting in his capacity as a witness. And speaking after the meeting, Ma, holding both Ho and Ker's hands, described the agreement as a new milestone in Taiwan's political history, saying he considers it a significant day for both Taiwan and the respective parties. Now, the KMT and the TPP also issued a joint statement, saying Ma, the KMT and the TPP will each recommend a polling expert, and they have now recommended those polling experts, and they will now be meeting to, well, assess the polls. The polls taken between November the 7th and the 17th, and the results of the internal polling review will determine the ticket and the results of that poll assessment will be announced tomorrow, that being Saturday, November the 18th by the Mining Joe Foundation Now, of course, this is all very well and good, they've agreed to come up with an idea to pick the polls but of course, will it work? Now, another bit of news about the alliance between the KMT and the TPP this week was when DPP presidential candidate Lai ching said that he has every confidence in the DPP's ability to win January's election despite the unified opposition. Now, he also alluded that Beijing is behind the KMT-TPP joint ticket, telling supporters that we must stand firm in the face of China's attempted interference in the election. Now, that statement came after Kerwin Zhe earlier this week said he received a telephone call from the American Institute in Taiwan asking whether Chinese influence was behind his party's decision to form an election alliance with the KMT. AIT, though, has not commented on Kerr's remarks, but has released a statement, or rather did yesterday release a statement, saying the United States will not take any sides in Taiwan's elections. Now, the DPP presidential candidate has said that the US would have not asked about Chinese interference without any evidence. So, Donovan, they finally came to an agreement to use polls to pick the ticket, and it's all going to be decided tomorrow... But what do you think will happen tomorrow? Will we see a happy Mr. Kerwinger? Will we see a happy Hoyoe? Will we see an elated Maing Joe? Or will we see some sad faces stamping their feet? <laughs> I think we're going to see a happy Maing Joe is, <laughs> is the short answer. Um, it basically, it I doesn't appear from everything that I've read about this that they've discussed uh, a few very basic issues uh, when it comes to this uh, agreement. Uh, for example, the Formosa polls on myformosa.com, they have come out with seven poll releases, but it's one poll that has been updated. It's a, a tracking poll that has been updated seven times uh, over uh, since the seventh of the month. Now, there may be eight now. Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't uh, been able to check this morning, but... What this means is is that either the number of polls that have come out between the set because they they set the cutoff dates between the seventh and the seventeenth is that the number of polls, uh, not including the internal ones, but the polls that have come out between the seventh seventh and the seventeenth, 
uh, is the Formosa poll, this tracking poll, is it one poll that has been updated seven times over the last seven days, or is it seven different polls because they've released seven different releases? So you can either look at it as that, you know, either the polls, polls released since the 7th show that Hoyui and um, Koenja are roughly tied, or it will show that Hoyui has outnumbers uh, Koenja about 9 to 2, if you include the Formosa polls, as individual polls released during that time period. So we don't really know which is going to be counted. And as again, I've been looking, I've been reading over all the accounts, and I don't see anything in these accounts that show whether they have or have not discussed this particular point. So depending on how you look at this, it, it could be that Ho either has a resounding victory or they're roughly tied. And we don't really know how that's going to work out. Donovan, what, mm-hmm. if it's tied, I mean, will it go to extra time or what will they do? That's a good question. And as far as, again, as far as I can tell, there have been no provisions made for this. However, uh, what's worth no- noting here is that there are three experts being chosen. You've got Ho's, uh, Hoyoi, Koenja has also picked an expert. Uh, on, on polling, and Mind Joe has picked one. So you have two KMT uh, chosen representatives and one from the TPP. So it's again, it's a two to one vote. Now, and I think what's a really important point to make here is that back in 2004, when you had James Song of the People's First Party, which by the way was even bigger and more influential and riding higher than the Taiwan People's Party uh, is today. It was a four-year-old party uh, in the 2004 election. And again, the TPP is a four-year-old party entering this election. But (laughs) uh, back then, James Song accepted being the vice presidential candidate on a ticket with Lian Chan from the KMT, and they lost. Barely, just barely, they lost. But what ended up happening is, the following year, Mainjo became the KMT party chair. Now, if you actually look at what happened following the 2004 election, when the, there was a, a joint KMT-PFP ticket, James Song and the PFP were not able to sufficiently differentiate themselves with the voters in subsequent elections, from the from the KMT, and they became basically absorbed uh, by the KMT. They were ba- they were slowly eaten eaten up because the KM- the KMT had more resources. They had more people. They had more more power, better brand recognition. And what they did was one by one, under Mainjo, who became the party chair in two thousand five, picked off the politicians in the PFP one by one, absorbed them into the, K, uh, the KMT, or in many cases, reabsorbed them into the, K, K, the KMT, and, and slowly the PFP disappeared. They were actually more popular than the KMT at one point. They were uh, a very powerful and influential party. They had uh, 40-some-odd uh, seats uh, 
in the legislature in a 200-some-odd seat uh, legislature at the time compared to the KMT's uh, 68, if, if I recall. Donovan, do you think that the Kerwinger would let this happen? Or do you think he's, he's very aware that this could happen? I think he's both aware this could happen and I think he really doesn't understand how the process works, is the short answer. So I think he's aware of the historical precedent. I think that he thinks that he is magically different, but I don't think that he understands the process of what actually happened to the PFP at the time and how the PFP was essentially absorbed. And it was Wang Jinping gave a series of warnings uh, the other day to Hou Yui, but really what I think was is that he was giving coded messages to Ke Wenzhe, but I don't think that uh, uh, Ke Wenzhe has a Wang, uh, Wang Jinping decoder ring, so I don't think he understood them. And Sean, what do you think? What do you think will happen on Saturday? Happy faces, smiling faces, or people stamping their feet? Uh, I do totally agree with Donovan's assessment that the smiling person in there in the room will definitely be Mind Joe, as he again has ascended himself into a position where he is basically essentially kingmaker on that side of the table. Uh, one of the issues is that uh, there's been wide reports that Ka's own party uh, d- was not really informed about this decision. The four principles made these decisions behind closed doors and then just came out, came out and by that time it's too late. Ka had already signed. Uh, to me at least, Ka feels like a person who quite often at least says rash things uh, and I think this is part of his impulsive behavior where he just went through. Of course, we've all seen immediately afterwards uh, his body language did not seem very positive about this either. I do think uh, there has been, you know, some people have said that he's been duped on the internet, especially some of his supporters. They think that he's gotten the bad end of the deal. Um, I mean, if you look at it another way, uh, it really depends on how badly Ko really wants to be vice president. Because I cannot imagine a scenario where, um, you know, Mind Joe, who has been a longtime, lifelong KMT loyalist, would re- would willingly put up a situation where uh, Ko would win. And not to mention, even many of the polls that show uh, Ko winning over Ho are are within the margin of error. So again, the devil's in the details, you know, since they they did not hash out the details earlier and, and it was sort of, you know, uh, I would say winged, uh, there's no clear definition and there's no clear definition of who's going to be the winner, then there's a lot of space for them to argue over this, which, which means that they will lose if that happens. So, I mean, at the end of the day, one might wonder, is Ka really doing this to become vice president? If he does, then he could bide his time, try to uh, boost his own uh, personal stature, I guess. And then if anything goes wrong, he could just simply blame the KMT, right? And say that, ah, you know, that's that's another party. You know, I asked some vice president, but, you know, ultimately that, that party is what's hindering us and I will do things differently again. Uh, it also comes, it also... It, I think also because really aware that people don't really necessarily have long memories. Uh, uh, Han Yu was really good at doing this, uh, saying that he was a sort of a newcomer to politics, even though he's he was he's been in Taiwan politics since the '90s. So I feel like Ke is aware of this as well. Uh, he in the past have has reversed uh, certain campaign promises uh, time and again with little issues. And uh, uh, I feel that he understands that this will be the case as well. 
And Sean, what about the allegations of Chinese interference has caused this electoral alliance? I, I feel Lai has a, a knee-jerk reaction, and he knows his base. So blaming things on China does does work, uh, especially when he says, uh, especially since there's been, I think, photos of a Ma Foundation official uh, in Beijing uh, recently, uh, earlier this month, uh, mm-hmm. that has come out. So when he says that, oh, you know, China is manipulating things behind the scenes and what have you, um, there's some credence to it because undoubtedly there is uh, Wu Mao or 50 centers on the internet uh, definitely, um, you know, telling everybody that, hey, uh, you know, uh, you know, DPP will lead to war, DPP are warmongers, et cetera, et cetera. So Lai's natural reaction to say that is a proven defensive move for his base. And Donovan, what do you think about this Chinese interference in the alliance? Now, it's interesting that the head of the Maingzhou Foundation, um, he was in uh, he was in uh, China in early November, just before uh, Ma announced his decision. Now, there's no proof that there's anything going on. He adamantly de- uh, denies that he had any contact with the Taiwan Affairs Office. Uh, but he returned to Taiwan. Ma made his decision to back uh, Ko Wenzhou's plan on the, uh, the opinion polling to determine the the a joint unified uh, opposition candidate, and uh, which of course shocked everybody, including the uh, you know, Eric Ju and um, Hoyoe camps, and then moved forward with it. Now. It, it, what's another interesting incident is that the Kerr camp announced that uh, AIT, the American uh, office here in Taiwan, the de facto embassy, contacted him and asked if there's any, uh, or his camp, and asked if there was any uh, Chinese interference, which of course he said no, as far as he knew. Um, but the lie camp came out and then said, that AIT wouldn't have asked if they didn't have some kind of proof as to this being the case. Now, we don't actually know if any of this or any of these allegations are actually true, but it does look suspicious and potentially alarming, uh, knowing that China has been trying to interfere with this election from the get-go and previous elections in in the past, uh, that the primary intermediary between Maingzhou and China and Maingzhou and the press, because it was, again, the head of the Maingzhou Foundation, who was the one who came out and announced Ma's plans to, uh, to uh, follow, you know, to go with this opinion polling method, methodology. Um, and he was in China right before this all happened. So there, there are a lot of questions swirling around this. No absolute proof, just some curious timing. And, you know, I, I, at this point, since there is nothing concrete, you know, there's, there's no way to come to an absolute conclusion. But it does look a little bit suspicious. Moving on now, the Apex Summit in San Francisco, where Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing founder Morris Jung arrived in the city on Wednesday morning, Taiwan time, to represent, well, Taiwan at the event. Now, Jung and his wife were met at the airport on their arrival by Taiwan's top envoy to 
to America, Xiaobi Kim, and some 50 overseas Taiwanese were waiting outside their hotel where they cheered as they entered the building. Now, speaking prior to leaving Taiwan, Zhang described the APEC summit as a very important dialogue platform and said he will be conveying messages from President Tsai Ing-wen to delegates at the event. Now, those messages include that Taiwan is committed to peace and prosperity in the Asia-Pacific region, that Taiwan will work with its partners to tackle climate change and energy transition, and that Taiwan will work with its partners to build a more resilient and flexible supply chain. Now, also, of course, Mr Xi Jinping met with Mr Joe Biden this week, where they had a bit of a chat about cross-strait issues, and apparently, well, here they were very happy with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs thanking the Biden administration for reiterating Washington's commitment to maintaining the cross-strait status quo during his meeting with Mr Xi. Now, according to Foreign Ministry spokesman Jeff Liu, the government is expressing its appreciation and sincere thanks to Biden for again publicly declaring resolute US support for the maintenance of peace and stability across the straight. So, Sean, and of course, lest we forget, one Mr Xi Jinping did say he never said he had plans to invade Taiwan either in 2027 or 2035. Well, I mean, this is Xi Jinping. It's very hard to believe authoritarians at their word because it could change at any moment. In fact, even democratic presidents often change their minds all the time. So I wouldn't take it for at face value for what it is. To me, it's it's basically meaningless. It's it's not worth the paper it's printed on. However, uh, it, you know, let's let's look at another authoritarian, Putin himself. Like Putin claimed that he, you know, just days before. Uh, uh, invading Ukraine again, that he was not going to do so. And yet he did, right? Uh, so, And also, uh, we also should be reminded of the fact that Chinese warplanes buzzed uh, across that, that median line again and uh, went rather close to Taiwan's airspace yet again while he was saying these things, right? So the best thing that Taiwan can do, really, is protect itself as best as it can while hoping for the best. But there is no certainty. And also... It needs to be pointed out that Xi Jinping also said that uh, Taiwan being uh, reunified, quote unquote, back into its fold uh, was inevitable. So, and how would that happen? It's very unlikely it's going to happen peacefully. It's going to happen via invasion. So I would just take it as some, something like an extended double speed. And what about the Biden-Xi meeting where they spoke about what they want to do with the Taiwan Strait? Putting the, we're not going to invade you yet, bit away. Do you think there was, there was no breakthrough there? Quite obviously, it was all like play, basically, we could say. It was just play. China going, stop selling weapons to Taiwan. And America going, we will stick to our one China policy. Yeah, it's it's notable that uh, the U.S. essentially said that we will stick with our one China policy, you know, uh, and how it's worded is one thing. But the reality is the U.S., especially the Biden administration, especially Biden himself, seems to be very clear that, uh, you know, uh, they hold their position. So both sides are going to mistranslate everything, a little bit mistranslate everything too. Uh, it's notable that uh, Chinese reports coming out of this, you know, has painted the U.S. as saying that, ah, yes, the United States is, is will, will, will uh, pledge to, you know, follow the one China principle, essentially, uh, which is not what the Biden administration said at all. So, uh, you know, it's, it's just more of the usual. They 
There, there was even a claim that supposedly China would look into or find ways to see if they could, uh, you know, not not produce um, the basic components of fentanyl and and sell it as much and things like that. But ultimately, it came down to you know uh, empty, not even promises, just sort of like polite words that said, "Sure, we'll try, maybe." And Donovan, you you watched the watched the APEC coverage there. What did you What did you take away from it? <laughs> I think Sean's last statement pretty much summed it up. A lot of empty statements. Um, you know, yeah, maybe we'll try. I, I think Sean summed that up quite well. Uh, yeah, definitely. There, there, there was a lot of posturing to try to make things a little uh, work a little bit. The U.S. talked a lot about guardrails in working with. China to try and bring a dialogue back between, for example, the militaries. Obviously, the Chinese military recently has been acting very provocatively with, you know, the Philippines, with Taiwan, with the American military, the Canadians, the French. Um, you know, they've been buzzing uh, foreign aircraft and uh, uh, warships, coming very, 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 very close. Uh, to potential collisions and all of these things could lead to a war. So the U.S., of course, they want to what they call bring back in guardrails and communications so that they can pick up a phone and try and diffuse any potential situation where there is, for example, a collision, which, again, the Chinese side has been going pretty much out of its way to almost provoke happening. Now, uh, you know, as far as Taiwan's concerned, Xi Jinping came out and, as Sean noted, both came out and said that, you know, there's no plans to attack or invade Taiwan anytime soon, and also, and also that this is a problem that will, you know, that can't be put off indefinitely as far as they're concerned, and that at some point that they're going to, uh, as you know, as they would phrase it in English, reunify or unify, because there's, in Chinese the, the, the terminology is identical, um, uh, Taiwan. So, you know, it, it, it was dual messaging. There was no, there was nothing written down. It was, so basically this all just came down to a series of empty words. And Sean, because there was a bit of a faux pas, Sean, Apparently, uh, Joe Biden described Xi Jinping as something he probably shouldn't have called him. Oh, dictator. Uh, personally, <laughs> I'm of the nature uh, of thinking that we should not try to um, appease dictators for what they aren't. Uh, I do know that in English we like to say President Xi, even though he's actually chairman. Uh, the thing is... The funny part was I did see a lot of positive reactions, as well as some negative reactions. Notably, Blinken uh, on the side was was seen uh, noticeably wincing when Biden said so. Uh, and then, of course, others uh, showing spreading memes about how the White House press uh, uh, corps is going to about walk back those statements, just like the times when Biden said that he would defend Taiwan and you know on an unprovoked Chinese invasion. 
uh, you know, the White House sort of has to, you know, tone it down. And this is just more of the norm, right? Which just shows that, you know, the pleasantries at APEC uh, weren't that meaningful at the end of the day. Uh, it is true. Um, Xi Jinping is a dictator. He does, he is an authoritarian of a government governmental system that's vastly different from the United States. Uh, and Donovan, I mean, do you think the Thai administration will be sort of very happy about the meeting and the way it went? I think that it was not a negative as far as Taiwan's concerned, um, but I think it was largely unsubstantive. Uh, Morris Zhang's trip, I think, was productive, but there were no breakthroughs. They had hoped to try and arrange um, uh, a meeting between Morris Zhang, of course, the founder of TSMC, uh, with uh President Biden, as far as I know, that hasn't happened and isn't going to happen. Um, there was a lot of talk prior to this APEC meeting of trying to get uh, Tsai Ing-wen herself uh, directly invited. That didn't happen. But again, uh, you know, Joe Biden did speak up on behalf of Taiwan, and so there's that. I think fundamentally from the Taiwan side, I think that what they were really trying to achieve in spite of all the press speculation of what they, they hoped, hoped to see uh, symbolically as far as Tsai showing up or Zhang meeting with, with, with Biden, I think really what the, the, the government was working on was uh, working on the sidelines and trying to uh, reach out to particularly Canada uh, because the uh, C, CPTPP uh, uh, Taiwan, of course, has registered to join the, that trade grouping, and Canada next year will be the uh, will be the head of the organization. It'll be their their turn to uh, take over, and there's generally within Taiwan, there's a sense that Canada is one of the more friendly members of the trade bloc, and that they might. Uh, push a little bit more forward to help bring in Taiwan and bring in uh, them into the fold. But of course, it's a, it's a unanimous vote. And you've got countries like Brunei and Peru and, uh, you know, that, you know, just a little bit of Chinese pressure may turn them away. So it, it's really hard to say how that's going to work out. But I think fundamentally, I think Taiwan's energy and emphasis was focused on the sidelines with the CPTPP members and not on a lot of the stuff the local press was, was uh, talking about. So, Sean, I mean, Donovan there was talking about Taiwan, looking at, I believe, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs this week said their hope that 2024 will be a year of opportunity to join the trade bloc that Donovan was talking about because Canada is in charge. And he also said it will hold talks with friendly nations but and use business people and NGOs and academics to discuss the issue with less friendly nations. And this is going to be a little tricky. Uh, the reason is that... Um, <sighs> Because China submitted its application before Taiwan. That, that was a big sigh from Sean there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. It was. Because, you know, there comes a process where China can easily say that, you know, you can't let Taiwan to skip skip the line, so to speak. There, China does have a lot of influence uh, with quite a few, well, actually all of these uh, CPTPP nations. And as Donovan pointed out, you need unanimous uh, approval. And the question now becomes, are these countries willing to 
to get on Beijing's ire if to benefit largely Taiwan. And the question might be that, and the answer is probably no. Uh, Taiwan does need uh, it the CPTPP much more than the other way around. And this is because, um, you know, uh, over 24% of Taiwan's total international trade are with these nations. Uh, and so it's going to be, it's not going to be easy, I think. Uh, I do know that, of course, for local consumption, the government's always going to be positive and, and try to hope that it could get in there. And ideally, it would be nice. Uh, but the reality is China is at an economic war with Taiwan, at least in my opinion. They will do everything they can you know, economically to try to limit Taiwan's abilities. Does this affect our companies? Yes, it does. So obviously, you know, it's in the interests of our uh, government to try their best. Um, but again, it's something the PRC opposes. And if the PRC ever gets in before Taiwan does, then that's that. However, in Taiwan's side, there's a lot of things that disqualifies the CCP or China from getting into the CPTPP. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of issues, like, for instance, a lot of its trade practices. Um, you know, they, they do a lot of economic coercion, industrial, industrial policies that really favor its home market. And unfortunately, you can't get into the CPTPP by doing these. And boy, that's a really not a great acronym. And migrant workers were in the news this week. That's because the Ministry of Labour's Workforce Development Agency said talks are ongoing to open Taiwan up to migrant workers from India. Now, according to the Cross-Border Workforce Management Division, discussions are progressing smoothly and the government is hoping to sign an agreement before the end of this year with India at the earliest. Now, reports have been saying an estimated 100,000 Indian migrant workers could come to Taiwan to work in the manufacturing, construction, agriculture and caregiving sectors. However, Labour Minister Xu Ming Chuan on Thursday denied those reports and she told lawmakers that no deal has yet been signed and that entry quotas and the sectors in which the Indian migrant workers will be allowed to seek employment have yet to be determined. Now she went on to call on the public to ignore what she called baseless comments regarding the numbers and she also slammed a flurry of racist comments that have appeared on the Ministry of Labour's Facebook page concerning Indian migrant workers. Now India's Ministry of External Affairs last week confirmed that the talks were underway. Now if you want to know the numbers where there are currently some 740,000 migrant workers here in Taiwan, a majority of whom come from Indonesia and Vietnam. So, Donovan, obviously someone put this out that there was 100,000 Indian migrant workers coming to Taiwan. Yeah, and and I'm not really sure where that number came from or who proposed it, but it it became very, very widespread, uh, and it it was in the international press as well. I mean, this is not some kind of locally made-up number. It seems to be an internationally made-up number. And again, nobody knows, you know, I, I haven't been able to determine where this number came from. Now, it may be that they may allow up to 100,000 at some point. And again, as you noted in your intro, you know, exactly what industries and what numbers have yet to be negotiated or determined. And they, they've come out and they've emphasized this is going to be something that is phased in. Uh, as as a as a process, so you know it's not going to be today. There's you know today there's five thousand Indians in Taiwan, mostly students. About half of those are long term residents, and then all of a sudden there's going to be a hundred thousand 
and five, you know, 105,000 overnight. It's not going to be that way. They're going to phase in a number of uh, Indian workers, in, uh, and they're talking primarily here. Uh, this topic is blue-collar jobs. Um, separately, there's a lot of talk, and there's been a lot of effort, and this has not gotten a lot of press, but there's been a lot of work uh, on bringing in uh, Indian engineers, uh, and, and there's a lot of engineering talent in India, which the semiconductor industry needs. And I think that we're also going to see a, a very sharp uptick over the next few years in Indian white-collar uh, uh you know, uh, white-collar immigrants here in Taiwan in the semiconductor supply chain, which, of course, includes hundreds of, of companies. Uh, companies like Micron have already been kind of ahead of the curve on this, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And, Sean, of course, there was also some ugly comments appearing about this. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the biggest problems that really concerns me is, yet again, um, racism is rearing its ugly head. A couple of years ago, there was a village uh, building a, uh, you know, a, a housing station or, or facility for some migrant workers for some project. Uh, I can't remember which, but mainly what I, my takeaway was the, the village being really angry, saying that there would be rapes and stuff. And this is largely fueled by Internet um, media, which highlights, uh, you know, these problems happening in certain portions of India. I'd like to remind everyone that India is a huge country. So painting them all as rapists, especially having them show up in Facebook comments is really disappointing. Uh, in fact, when I try to search for any evidence of migrant workers, uh, you know, causing a spiral in rapes and what have you, uh, I actually found the opposite. What happens is that migrant workers were often targeted. Uh, they were they were less likely to go to the run to the police. So, if anything, you know, we have to work on protections for these migrant workers to make Taiwan a more appealing place to work in. Especially since Taiwan is very dependent on migrant workers, just like many other countries in in Asia. Uh, people, let's have some context. They didn't say a hundred thousand were going to fly in, just like Donovan said. That's not the case, right? Donovan Donovan has a strong point. But I also wanted to bring in some context, right? As of 2018 in January, there were over 150,000 Filipino uh, migrant workers in Taiwan, 200,000 Vietnamese migrant workers, 260 Indonesian migrant workers, and 61,000 Thai uh, migrant workers in Taiwan. So given these figures and given how many of our factories actually depend on migrant workers, given that how much of our elderly system depends on it, by uh, in about two years, by 2025, Taiwan will be considered a basically an elderly nation because 20% of our population apparently will be made up of practically or almost retirees. So uh, India is actually coming, us, coming in and doing us a favor and so uh, we should we should not only welcome these migrant workers, but we should also respect them for the service that they're doing for us. Uh, in addition, they're often doing it at wages that are well below the norms, even the lowest norms in Taiwan. So uh, that's my take on it. And I'm really, again, really ashamed that there were so many racist comments uh, uh, in that Facebook page stirring up discontent and stirring up uh, fear and paranoia. Sean just nailed it, um, I, and, and I can add. Uh, uh, you know, I can add to Sean's comments. Um, if you look back, uh, uh, you know, 
something that Sean points out that I think is really quite powerful and we really need to pay a lot of attention to is there's a lot of fear stoked up about what these migrant workers will do when they come here. But it, the reality is they're far more likely. Uh, and again, this is what Sean, Sean pointed this out, but I really want to underscore and buttress what Sean said on this is that they are far more likely to be the victims uh, of crime than they are to commit them. It's true that th there have been crimes committed within the migrant worker community, but keeping in mind that there's three quarters of a million of them, that there are going to be some crimes that's going to happen. But I remember a case, and I, I remember talking about it uh, with you here, Gavin, on, uh, on ICRT for the Central Taiwan News, of an Indonesian woman here in Taichung who, she was a caregiver, and she had been repeatedly been sexually assaulted. She went to the police here, and she was ignored. She went to the brokers uh, that brought her here, and she was ignored, and she was admonished to not get pregnant. Um, and then finally, she posted a portion of her being assaulted on a YouTube video, and in, in the Indonesian press picked it up. And... I remember one of the headlines here locally that absolutely shocked me. It was Liberty Times, and the whole point of the Liberty Times article was Taiwan has lost face over this issue, but the whole article totally missed the point that this was a woman who was being assaulted. Instead, the article talked about how Taiwan was embarrassed about this. In, it didn't focus on the fact that the police, the brokers, the local family that employed her was committing assault. None of these things. It was all about how the Indonesian press had picked up on this story, and therefore Taiwan was looked bad internationally. And it totally dehumanized this poor woman. Um, so, you know, fundamentally, we have to keep in mind you know, as Sean, and again, Sean absolutely rightly brought this point up, is they're more likely to be victims than they are likely to be perpetrators of crime. Uh, and when they do tend to be involved in crimes, uh, it, migrant workers, it tends to be of, it tends to be within their own community and not against Taiwanese. And before we go this week, former Premier Sean Chen proposed the introduction of a tax on sugary and fattening foods and beverages. Now, Chen's call for the so-called fat tax came after Tainan Mayor Huang Weijie recently admitted to gaining 10 kilos since he assumed office after winning the 2018 local elections. Now, Huang made that revelation after the Sports Administration published the results of a survey earlier this month on Taiwan's most overweight special municipalities for 2022. And the survey just happened to find that Tainan 
and topped the list, with more than 43% of the city's population being overweight last year, with a body mass index of 25 or higher. Tainan was followed by Taichung in second place, and I believe Taoyuan placed third most overweight city of 2022, and that was followed by Kaohsiung, New Taipei and Taipei. Now, Sean, of course, some countries have introduced fat taxes, but A, how do you think this will go down in Taiwan, and B, do you see it making a big difference to how many sugary drinks and biscuits people eat? Uh, I like to joke that, given the cuisines uh, and how sweet things are in southern Taiwan, that it's probably just a way to, to punish the constituents that would not have voted for Sean Chen and his party. <laughs> you know, but otherwise, um, the taxes that I think they're talking about is so inco- in- inconsequential that it's not going to make a difference. It's not like they're going to charge a huge amount like, uh, you know, 3,000 NT or 100 US dollars for uh, a drink uh, for soda. That's not the case. They're talking about a negligible amount, so it's not going to really change anything. Uh, I've tried to search for situations where fat taxes have actually worked, uh, other than, you know, extreme cases where certain commodities like cigarettes were taxed a great amount. It wasn't really that effective in curbing anything. Uh, What did actually help were incentives to actually make healthier drinks cheaper or more accessible or better and a better educated public, you know, or developing a taste for, I guess, healthier foods. Those things actually helped a bit. But, you know, a a fat tax, uh, I I try, I I don't know, at least my Google Foo has not been able to find a single instance where it actually did anything. Uh, Just like the taxes we have on alcohol or tobacco, uh, in most cases, they're too small to really make a change. So, Donovan, what do you think about fat taxis, mate? <laughs> well, I think Sean Sean is a New Yorker, so I, you know, he I think he knows more about these these things than I do. Um, he, he was in, in your intro. The one thing that struck me is that Taipei was relatively low on the list, and my theory on that is it's because in Taipei people have to go to the MRT and then stand there. You know, holding the strap there while they ride on the MRT, whereas those of us outside of Taipei, we don't have much in the way of public transportation, and so we just sort of putter around on our scooters, and, you know, um, we don't stand up as much. So, now, as far as whether the tax will have any impact, I think Sean's pretty well summed that up. Yeah, indeed. And in fact, um, uh, cities that have more cycling, uh, j- just to support what Donovan said, cities that have more benches, something Taipei actually sorely needs, uh, are things that encourage people to walk farther and longer, uh, as well as shelters, right? Uh, like, you know, from the rain and what have you. Uh, these things are some things our cities can do to encourage far better, healthier uh, habits. Uh, of course, Taiwan, you know, all over Taiwan, there are plenty of parks where you can do exercises in the morning, what have you, and there's tens of little, like, public uh, little gym facilities uh, all over Taiwan. But again, what's really lacking is walkable cities outside of Taipei. And that is something, if we work on, we'll do far better than a fat tax. And that's where we have to leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Sean Su. It's always great to be back. And from Taichung by Donovan Smith. And again, always great to be here. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can access all our previous shows. 
Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.